Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, hello, hello! It's On The Ledge Podcast and I'm here to draw life into your houseplants. In this episode, I chat to illustrator Katie Vaz about her new book, My Life in Plants, and we get all nostalgic about uh, certain plants from our pasts. And I answer a question that has an answer that's somewhat heavy in snake plants. What, you may be wondering, is happening with my crowdfunding project, Legends of the Leaf. I don't, I don't know why I did that, but, you know, it's, it's exciting. It's got to have its own jingle. Well, I'm hoping it's going to be coming to a bookshop near you before long. Legends of the Leaf, the houseplant book that you need in your life, hashtag ad break, (laughs) is being crowdfunded right now. And I am at 30% as I speak. I would love for any of you who want this book to happen to go and make a pledge I'm not going to bang on about it too much, but if you visit the show notes or just go to unbound.com, you'll see it on the front page there. And let's get this book funded and then I can get on and write it, which is going to be so exciting. I know lots of you have already pledged for which thank you so much from the heart of my bottom or the bottom of my heart, possibly. And I will be going live on Instagram and Facebook over the weekend to answer your questions about the book. So do fire them over to me if you have any. And thank you also to Jewbags1 from the UK, who's left a lovely review for On The Ledge on Apple Podcasts. Thanks also to Jeff, who has got in touch to talk to me about pelagoniums. Now, Jeff was a bit of a Pelagonium naysayer until recently, associating them with old ladies, as he put it in his email. But earlier this year, he was given two of them as part of a plant giveaway due to the pandemic. He was underwhelmed, uh, (laughs) but left them on his sunny patio and ignored them. Jeff writes, I think I've watered them perhaps five times all season and never once did they seem to need it. Instead, they bloomed daily and only out of sheer boredom did I ever bother to deadhead them. But Jeff decided to bring those plants inside when the frost arrived. And they've come into his home and brightened it up tremendously. Jeff says the cheery flowers have continued despite the fleeting light and gloomy days and I've grown to really respect them. I now understand why everyone's grandmother seems to have grown them by the bushelful. They offer very high reward for almost no effort. And Jeff then offers an apology to Pelagoniums and older ladies who have been maligned as boring. And he asks, are there any other plants you can think of that have a reputation as being a granny plant simply for being low maintenance and cheery? Oh, Jeff, that's a jolly good question. And I'm very glad that pelagoniums have come into your life and made you change your view on this particular plant. 
granny plants. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I I mean, as somebody who is making my way towards old lady status, <laughs> I'm, I'm middle aged now, but you know, we're all going to get there eventually, one hopes. I don't really like the term granny plant, but I know exactly what you mean, Jeff. Those plants that are just so ubiquitous and effortless that those of us who are too cool for school just think we're not going to bother with. I would say that the flaming Katie Calanco Blusfeldiana is right up there as a plant that could be fitted into this category. And I'd also like to give a shout out for the Calciolaria. Have you ever heard of that? It's one of the very first plants I bought from Woolworths and it's really a pot plant rather than a long-term house plant but it has these wonderful slipper shaped flowers and you really just don't see this growing indoors but it does make a lovely temporary indoor pot plant so there's another one to add to the list. I'd also definitely include St. Paulias or the African violets in this category. I think some of the angel wing begonias and the rhizomatous begonias used to be in this category, but now they've been discovered by all the cool kids and so are much in demand. I mean, it goes back to my old saw, doesn't it? That beauty is in the eye of the beholder and don't listen to what anyone else tells you is a cool plant. Just trust your own instincts. I have to admit, Jeff, I am a bit rubbish at overwintering pelagoniums indoors. They tend to die on me. I don't think my house is particularly suitable for them. I always give it a go. I did manage to get one red pelagonium through the winter in my unheated greenhouse this year, just gone, and uh, we'll give it another go. <laughs> but uh, any pelagonium overwintering tips for the house, please shoot them at me right now. Thanks for all your feedback on the potting mix ingredients episode. I'm going to collate all the information about the different ingredients into a blog post, which I can then keep up to date. And it's a good job, really, because I've already had feedback from one listener telling me that I missed out an ingredient that begins with Z, which actually would have been really useful because it was supposed to be an A to Z. The ingredient, it's called zeolite. And thanks to Basma for telling me about it. And Basma, as you may remember from her appearance on Meet the Listener, lives in Qatar. And apparently zeolite is quite commonly available there as a soil amendment to provide aeration and nutrients. Here in the UK, it doesn't seem to be widely available. It is sold as a pond filter material. But it's really interesting to know that it's another possibility to look into uh, if it's available in your area. And Basma also mentions that Lechuza, the company that makes self-watering pots, sell a substrate called PON. And in the ingredients of that product are listed zeolite, pumice and lava. So that's another one to look out for. And of course, you could make your own mix, as Basma has done, using those three ingredients if you have access to them separately. And Basma says, I mixed equal parts of zeolite, pumice and perlite and used the mix in place of soil with a reservoir of water. It's been working great so far, especially for plants that were not doing well in soil or laker. So keep feeding back more information about potting mix ingredients and I'll let you know when that all-encompassing blog post is live because like my pages on buying houseplants in the UK and the US, it's something I'm going to try to keep up to date. Thank you to Rose for becoming a crazy plant person by supporting me on Patreon. All the details for signing up to Patreon are in my show notes. 
One more tiny thing for Patreon subscribers, please do check that your address is up to date because I'm starting to work on my December festive mail out. So I need your address to be on there and to be correct. I'll be sending out a message soon on how to do that. Have you ever spotted a house plant, perhaps in someone else's home or in a house plant shop? And just seeing that plant has brought tears to your eyes, given you goosebumps or brought a huge smile to your face. In this week's interview, I'm talking to illustrator Katie Vaz about her new book, My Life in Plants. This memoir has been written and illustrated by Katie and charts her journey of self-discovery through the plants that she's grown. We talk about how plants can add meaning to our lives and we do talk a little bit about bereavement and the death of pets. So just a warning in case that's something that's a little bit raw for you right now. But we also talk about how drawing plants can help you observe them better and also Katie's gardening journal, which I hope you'll find inspirational. Over to Katie to introduce herself. Hi, my name is Katie Vaz and I'm an illustrator and author based in upstate New York. And I recently put out a book called My Life in Plants, which is an illustrated memoir. Really great to have you on the show, Katie. I apologise in advance if my voice is a bit creaky. It's cold season here, even though the sun is beaming through the window and uh, making my glass cloth look all cloudy. Um, colds are here, so I apologise if I'm sounding creaky, but it's it's great to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this book because it's something a little bit different from the normal kind of houseplant book we talk about. Can you just talk us through the basic premise of the book? Sure. So My Life in Plants is an illustrated memoir that tells the story of my life through 39 plants and flowers that have been like an audience to various parts of my life all the way back to childhood up to present day. Each chapter in the book features a particular plant or flower, and I talk about the memories that are attached to it or if there are any lessons that I think that I learned during that time period. Some of the stories in the book are warm and light and nostalgic, while others are a bit heavy and poignant, I would say. Because it's a memoir, it's, of course, very personal to me and about my life, but I do talk about some universal experiences that I think a lot of people can relate to, such as just like growing up and, and forging your own path in life and figuring out who you are and being okay with where you are and the mistakes you've made and how all those things have helped you grow and, and you know formed you into who you are today. Well, it's really wonderful to find out that you are as, as nostalgic about certain plants as I am. And there are specific stories tied to these plants as you sort of uh, unravel them in the book so well. Why do you think it is that plants bring out those nostalgic emotions in you? So plants and flowers and everything related to gardens has sort of been around in my life as far back as I can remember. And even before I even noticed it or really cared about plants that much, but a lot of um, my childhood memories are attached to plants and gardening and, and flowers. And um, yeah, just some of my strongest memories from growing up. My grandpa had a huge garden when I was uh, little and... Um, 
you know, all, all of my younger memories are around like sitting outside surrounded by all of the pine trees and the different plants he would plant and the, you know, eating vegetables and fruits from the garden. And um, now that I'm older, I think plants and flowers and gardening have been my way to connect to my family. So um, I'm fortunate enough to live near family and I can see them fairly often. I mean, not this year, really, but any other normal year. But um, it's a way to feel close to the people that aren't around anymore or just something to connect me to my roots and where I come from. So I think there's just a lot of like, um, yeah, just like deeply rooted into who I've been since the beginning of my life. It's amazing, isn't it? The power of plants to bring out an emotion. I've This year, I've been growing African marigolds and not even because I really like them, but just because the smell when you deadhead them is so mm. nostalgic for me of being a child. And my dad had quite sort of, I guess this was the 80s, quite traditional 80s bedding plant taste, including <laughs> African marigolds. And I remember just, just snapping off and getting this, the, the flowers and getting these this really strong scent. And um, it really does take me back to being a child in our garden. Yeah, I plant marigolds too for that same reason, that they were around when I was younger. And it's a unique scent. It is. And my um, my, my family, uh, my parents live overseas in Canada. So um, and I haven't seen my dad for ooh, four years. So it's, it is for me, it's a really, really powerful thing to be able to unleash that. But sometimes that can be a little bit difficult as well and bring up difficult emotions. Were there any chapters of the book that you found difficult to kind of write and, and bring back uncomfortable memories? Oh, yeah. So yeah, writing this book was definitely an emotional journey of sort of reliving some darker moments and then getting to relive some of my favorite moments. But um, I do talk about death and grief in the book and what those experiences were like for me. And so writing those chapters, I think, was surprisingly difficult. I knew that it wouldn't be enjoyable, but um, it brought out a lot of feelings and emotions in me. And uh, I discovered that I had a lot to work through that I didn't realized before. And, um, in the end, it, and it was really therapeutic to go through that. But, um, the plants in particular are peace lilies. Those are ones that I remember from funerals. And, um, in another chapter, I talk about a Boston fern that unfortunately died when I was grieving after my cat passed away from, um, a sickness. And so just having to revisit some of my, um, most painful memories was really difficult, but I felt that it was important to include these in the book because they were such pivotal um, moments in my life. And so these aren't my favorite plants for good reason, I think, but I thought it was important to include those as something that was very defining in my life. Yeah, it's amazing how painful it is when pets die, isn't it? It's yeah, really. It's... I mean, if anyone just talks, I don't even know anyone. I don't even know the person or the pet. If anyone comes and starts talking about their pet being ill or dying, I'm just in tears. It's real. It's um. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it can be very sharp. It's like surprisingly painful. Um, I mean, all loss is different for everybody, but um. I would, yeah, when my cat passed away, it was a different kind of pain, but just as painful as when um, a relative or a loved one died. You know, it's just that, mm. you know, deep devastation from my experience. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. And I guess in your association of a particular plant, the Boston firm with that is is interesting that you sort of tied those two things together. I guess a, a loss of plants is not quite so devastating, although it can be really <laughs> upsetting when plants are even when not 
connected to the the death of a pet. I always try to say to people on the show, you know, don't worry if you kill some plants, but it is hard when something that you really were trying to nurture doesn't make it. I agree. The longer you have it too, I think you become a bit more attached to it. I have a spider plant that I actually bought around the same time that I bought that Boston fern and I still have it. I think it's the longest plant I've ever had. And, um, I'm currently struggling with a fungus gnat infestation for the first time ever. And it's real bad with that plant. And I feel like if it was any other plant, I almost for my sanity would just be like, well, let's sacrifice this one if it means like (laughs) making my life easier. But because I've had it for so long, I feel very attached to it. And I think it would be a bit devastating to lose something that I've held on to and kept it alive somehow (laughs) for this long. Yeah, that's I really feel I've got a lovely um Gosh, I can't remember the common name, uh, Pelionia um, plant, which has got scale. And I promised somebody a cutting of it because it's such a beautiful plant and I just can't get rid of this scale. It's I, I kind of want half of me wants to just stick it on the compost, but I'm like, <laughs> no, I love this plant. I've had it for so long. It's so nice. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a painful one. Yep. <laughs> oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Tell me about some of the, you've obviously got all these plants that have, have great significance for you in the book. Some you like, some you don't like. Are there any plants that you really can't stand? There's got to be a few uh, standout hated plants. I think I would probably go back to the the peace lilies. I don't know. I think because it has such a horrible connotation for me personally, anything I've seen at like a funeral just... Uh, it's just not something I went around. There were um, other lilies. I, I'm not sure of like exactly what they're called, but the ones that are incredibly fragrant that you often see at like funerals or um, sometimes I think they're out at like Easter maybe. Um, but anything that has, I think, such a strong uh, negative emotion for me, I think having houseplants around is something that makes me feel so happy and warm. And it's like having these little creatures around to almost keep me company. So having anything around that reminds me of something that's incredibly sad is just, uh, I don't know if I hate them, but I would never choose to have them in my house probably. <laughs> I guess that's that's all there is really to consider, isn't it, when you're choosing houseplants is not what anyone else thinks about them, but but how you f- relate to them and how you feel about them is the important bit. So uh, yeah, I always try to say that to people, you know, don't feel like you've got to go with the crowd. You might absolutely hate the, the up-to-date trendy plant and want to grow aspidistras or something <laughs> like that. Um, right. But, yeah. It, <laughs> There's a lot of uh, diva plants around that I'm like, nope, that's not for me. (laughs) I think it would just drive me nuts to uh, have to worry about something like that. But that's just me. I think it is. You're right, though. You should have the plants around that make you happy and that you enjoy taking care of. Now, you've uh, il- written and illustrated the book. You're an illustrator. Um, and I've, I'm very jealous of this because 
I really can't draw. And I know illustrators and artists will say, oh, everyone can draw. (laughs) No, I really can't. Um, (laughs) But you were telling me before this interview that you have been doing some more drawing since you wrote the book and, and putting together a plant journal. Can you tell me a bit about that? If you've read the book, you know that I've had houseplants throughout my life and most of them have died. <laughs> um, but I, within like the last year or so after working on this book, being immersed in the world of plants and houseplants and sort of paying a bit more attention to the ones I have around me and why I have them, I feel like I've started getting a bit more serious about taking care of the plants and paying attention to what they each need and, and figuring out like the proper care instead of just getting plants and you know, okay, you're here, but if you die, I guess we were never meant to be friends type of feeling that I've always had or attitude about them. But um, yeah, so I thought it would be nice to have a plant journal. So I've been acquiring all of the plant care information and um, illustrating the plants to go with that so that there's like a picture of the plant and the different tips and um, care guides for how to take care of them. But um, yeah, just like a collection of all of my plants together in a nice journal so everything is organized. But yeah, my journal is sort of a mixture of a sketchbook and scrapbook and journal right now. I think because it's just for me, it's sort of my place to play. So it's not like some fancy leather bound expensive journal where everything is like perfectly laid out. It's just, uh, it's in like a three ring binder with plastic sleeves and I have loose sheets of paper of plants that I've illustrated on different types of paper and different mediums. Yeah. So it's just, it's a place for me to play around with drawing and to keep track of the plants I have and just sort of document the journey of paying attention to my little plant friends now. I often feel very intimidated when you see these sort of journals that are in these very fancy sketchbooks. And I think the idea of just having it in a ring binder with, with plastic pockets where you can take things in and out is great because it takes some of the pressure off. Oh, yeah. Because I'm always like, oh, I'm starting this new thing and I'm going to ruin it by, you know, have to cross something out in the first two minutes. Exactly. And the idea of being able to have that, that just very simple you know, taking things in and out is brilliant. And also you can expand it, you know, endlessly as your collection grows, which is great. I mean, as I say, I've I've got no artistic talents, but I'm sure it's one of those things that the more you allow yourself to just enjoy, actually you, you build your confidence as you go. Yes, definitely. I think it's one of those things where like as cliched as it is, it really just requires time and putting in the hours to it. Um, I think when you're first starting out, that's incredibly frustrating though, because you want to go from the idea to like a beautiful rendering of exactly what you wanted very quickly. And you don't want to put up with all the, what you would call ugly ones in the meantime, but, um, that, yeah, you just have to put in the time. And I think it's sort of something that evolves without recognizing it. So I feel like I, um, I've been doing this for a while now and I always wanted to have like a style and have it be like unique, but it wasn't something that I set out to do on purpose. Like I'm going to draw like this and it's going to look exactly like this. It was just, I I'll draw something how it feels like it should be to me. And so when you get like this inkling of as you're drawing something and it's a bit like entertaining to you or charming or amusing. And that's like the first little tidbits of like noticing that 
you're like making progress and your style's evolving and it's only going to improve from there. And what I love about this idea of doing a plant journal, not that I've got around to doing it, but I love the idea of it because what I'm always saying to people is, you know, look at your plants, really look at them, really observe, get that hand lens, get up close, take it out the, the outer pot, take it out of the inner pot, have a really good look at it. And of course, if you're going to draw it, that's exactly what you do need to do. So you must learn so much just through that process of looking. Definitely. Yeah. I was just thinking about that as I was drawing a plant the other week. Um, yeah, because I feel like drawing is basically just seeing really well. And so as I'm drawing the plants, I'm noticing these textures and colors that I didn't, I just, you know, glanced at it before, but now I'm noticing as I need to draw it, well, how does the leaf actually connect to the stem or what shape is it? Or do I see any veins and and what direction are they going? And so I feel like I develop an appreciation for it that I didn't have before just studying it and kind of seeing like, oh, wow, like this up close is so interesting. And I just completely missed that before. So yeah, I think it does, it like deepens your relationship a little bit with it and and makes you appreciate how the plant is made and what makes it so unique. And what's your houseplant collection like now? So I just counted it up to no, but I have 14 houseplants, which is like probably on the smaller end, but I have uh, 14 potted plants and then a couple of air plants floating around. I mean, I was just going to say, I always say to people, you know, you need to find the right number for you. And that that may well be the right number for you. I think the right number for me right now is probably about half the plants that I've actually got. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, because I'm really struggling to, to keep everything going. And I guess as you draw your plants and you understand them, you can find things that really work for you. I bet air plants are quite fun to draw, actually. I can imagine they're quite responsive to drawing and responsive to close looking because I sometimes condemn them as being a bit boring. But actually, I'm sure once you get up close and personal and spend time with them you appreciate their qualities definitely yeah I like drawing I have an air plant that's hanging in a vase by my window and it's got such curly like spirally leaves and I tend to draw that a lot when I'm drawing um like an illustration of my office or I like to draw almost like journal, like day-to-day stuff, just things that are happening in my life. And a lot of those take place in my office. And that air plant shows up quite a bit. Um, And I think I draw spider plants pretty regularly for that same reason when they have like the curly, uh, bouncy leaves. It's fun to draw. Are there any plants that you didn't get to include in the book that you wish you had? I was thinking about that just recently. I was going through some old pictures and I have a lot of plants from different vacations and travels that I I would have loved to have included. But when coming up with the narrative for the book, I tried to pick plants that were evenly spaced throughout my life so that it was a gradual journey of when I was younger in my childhood up to present day. So there were a lot of plants that didn't fit the narrative that I really wanted to focus on. So one thing I was thinking of recently, and it's not necessarily like a house plant or anything related to gardening, but I went to Iceland a couple of years ago and one of the like nature aspects that sticks out a lot is this beautiful moss that covers so much of the landscape. And um, that was a really great trip. And it was one of the first vacations that I went on with my now husband. And so that moss, which seems like kind of ordinary and maybe a bit boring, is so closely tied to 
that trip. And there's a lot of memories that I could talk about with that, but it was just one of those things that didn't fit in the book. And, um, yeah, there's just a lot of things from travels. I would say that I could make a whole other book about that probably, but there wasn't room in this one. Oh, there's your sequel right there. The houseplant community is a, an ever growing and diverse one. Publishing a book about houseplants, as I may be about to discover, <laughs> uh, I hope, <laughs> is a, a challenge and an interesting journey, I'm sure. Have you learned anything about the houseplant community from publishing this book and the response you've had? Oh, yeah. I think before this, I had no idea that there was this big of a houseplant community. I'm very late to the party, I think. Um, but I was surprised at how massive it is, how many plant influencers and and different accounts across social media and blogs and podcasts. And um, yeah, I was just blown away. Um, After I finished the book, it came time to figure out how I wanted to market it. And I thought reaching out to people who have these very deep connections to plants might be an interesting way to go about that. So during that stage, I was just, yeah, blown away by how massive it is. But um, one thing I feel like I have learned is that the houseplant community and gardening community is just so welcoming. And it feels to me very inclusive and friendly and people seem very generous with sharing information and um, just different tips for how to manage and, and care for plants and taking care of pests and things like that. So I think it, it does seem like a very um, warm and, yeah, great community to be a part of. Well, I've put some of your pictures from the book and also of your wonderful plant journal in the show notes for people to take a look at and also the full details of the book, which is which is uh, out now. And it's it's really great. And I love your style of illustration. It's really fun. And the one of the pictures is of a Chinese money plant. I don't know if that's an actual pot or if that's a pot from your imagination, but it's in this amazing red and white dotty round pot and I'm thinking gosh I love that pot that's the perfect <laughs> pot for that plant so yeah it's it's great fun I, I would say that it it has made me really think again about whether I should have a go at doing some illustrations because maybe there's an artist in me after all so thank you for inspiring me <laughs> and um, thank you for joining me today it's great to hear about your book thanks Jane thanks so much for having me Katie's book, My Life in Plants, is out now, published by Andrews McMeal Publishing, and it's available in all the usual booky places. You can find out more about Katie on her website, katievaz, that's V-A-Z.com. And of course, I'll add all of her links in the show notes, including her Instagram, Etsy and Twitter. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can hear an extra leaf 56, which features more chat with Katie about how she became a professional illustrator and what you need to get started drawing your plants, whether that's just for fun or as a professional. And now it's time for question of the week, which comes from Alison. Alison describes herself as an avid outdoor gardener who struggles keeping plants alive indoors. She's in Canada and the only plants she can successfully grow in her current flat are spider plants, an unnamed inherited cactus and a sort of miniature snake plant. Ferns, they get too dry, succulents go stretched out and leggy. She's not sure what she can grow. Alison has a big south facing living room window that gets hot in the summer and quite cold in winter and she wants some plants to expand her indoor greenery. 
Well, I'm a bit surprised, Alison, that your succulents are going leggy. I'm wondering if you're putting them right in that hot south facing living room window because that sounds absolutely ideal for cacti and succulents or or most of them anyway because most of them do require a really hot and sunny spot in the summer and a much cooler temperatures but still lots of light in the winter. That said the amount of legginess that you get with succulents does really vary according to what kind of succulent you have and certain things like echeverias Ioniums and some sedums, it's really hard to stop them being leggy unless they are really enjoying high light levels during winter. It's partly tied to temperature. If it's cool enough, then the plants will just sit there, but if it's warm enough that they're still growing, they will be stretching towards that light. I am going to go out on a limb here. Given that you've said that one of the plants you have managed to succeed with is a snake plant, I'm going to suggest that you go large on snake plants because there are so many different cool Sansevierias available these days. You've got spindly ones like Kirkii and huge meaty ones such as Masoniana, the one that's the whale fin uh, snake plant with a huge kind of paddle-like leaves, and even the bog-standard Sansevieria trifasciata, or to use the correct Latin name, Dracaena trifasciata, because of course, Sansevieria has been moved into the Dracaena genus in recent years. That can be stunning en masse. If you've seen Mad Men, you'll recall in your mind's eye Don Draper's apartment and that amazing trough of Sansevieria trifasciata by the door. It can look really cool like that. Sansevierias, I suspect, won't go leggy in the same way as other succulents, especially if they're left to be quite cool in winter and they'd make a really good choice and you could have a whole different forest of different shapes and sizes i haven't even mentioned the bird's nest types like harnii there's different colors i mean i'm probably going on about sansevierias a bit because as i mentioned in a recent episode i have now got my wishlist plant bantel sensation which is a beautiful tall silvery variegated Sansevieria. So exciting to have this plant. Uh, another one that's fairly similar to but but slightly different colour of variegation and, and also slightly wider leaves is Metallica. And of course, the plant that's on the On The Ledge logo, Sansevieria cylindrica, or, or Witch's Fingers, is pretty cool too. So I think you could do a lot with a range of different Sansevierias would look just really awesome in different pots or maybe all grouped together in a in a grouping. There's just so much you could do. In fact, you know what? I must do an episode, a whole episode on Sansevieria because uh, they are amazing, amazing plants. So I think Sansevierias could be a good choice uh, for somebody like you, Alison, who's not had huge amounts of success with plants so far. If you've managed to keep a miniature snake plant alive, not quite sure what variety that might be, but that's telling me that it's something that would be happy in your apartment. And often that's the way to go. Look at what's working already and go with what you can do that isn't going to die on you and is going to look great. If you want some inspiration, then do look at the hashtag Sansevieria Sunday on Instagram for some amazing group shots of Sansevierias together and different ways of displaying them. 
they're often recommended for, for deep shade. And yes, they will sit there in deep shade and not complain too much, but they are so much happier if they are in sun. Um, so this south facing window will be absolutely ideal. I think you could start a really nice collection, Alison, and it could be the start of something great. If you want something hanging down, you could go for some of the trailing succulents like Sedum morganianum, the burrow's tail, Othona capensis ruby necklace, which is a beautiful, it's another string of type uh, trailing succulent with little purpley tinged, uh, what shape are they? I guess they're sort of spindle shaped leaves, which are amazing. And of course, a string of pearls, Curio rolianus would look great too. These are a little bit more tricky, but if you've got them in the right potting mix, you should be able to make those thrive as well. I'll put a link in the show notes to my trailing plants week where I talk about how to take care of Curio rolianus. And you could also go wild on the spider plants too. Try collecting different cultivars of the spider plant, the plain green one, the curly one. There's just lots of options on that. Do go back and have a listen to the spider plant episode if you want more inspiration on that front. So there's loads of options. I'll post some pictures in the show notes of my Sansevierias, which very, very, very low maintenance and very easy. And I hope that offers some inspiration for you, Alison. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, do drop me a line on theledgepodcast.gmail.com. That's all for this week's show. I will be back next Friday for more extreme plantiness. Join me then. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and I Snost I Lost by Dr. Turtle. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit my show notes at janeperone.com for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.